You're listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. It is our desire that you will be helped by this Bible message. You know, it's amazing on this Wednesday night before Easter that we are preparing for Easter Sunday, but before the resurrection, there was a crucifixion. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was bruised, He was beaten. We talked about that Sunday morning. He was smitten of God. The prophecies describe that Jesus, after the beatings, the scourging, the torture, uh, the crown of thorns uh, on the cross, that Jesus was not even recognizable as a man. It doesn't say that they couldn't recognize that it was Jesus. It says that they could not even recognize that that was a human being. And that's what Jesus went through for us. Let's not forget this Easter when we celebrate the resurrection and the empty tomb. Let's not forget that Jesus hung on the cross so that we could have an Easter Sunday, so we could have a resurrection. And then let's not forget that that image on the cross is not the image that we're going to see one day. Revelation chapter 1 tells us that the image we're going to see of Jesus in all of His glory, uh, His eyes will be like fire, His hair like wool. And uh, uh, John said, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though I were dead. uh, John could not even describe the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And uh, I hope you love Him, man. I hope you never forget uh, that he loves you and uh, he gave his life for you. We'll dismiss the teens on target to go to their Bible study at this time with Brother Nathan and Miss Grace. I appreciate our teens being in church tonight. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, what the Lord has for us in the auditorium tonight for our Bible study. Acts chapter 1. We saw last week as we're studying the church and what the church is all about. By the way, um, Bethany's got her sister Rena here visiting from California. Rena's been here before with the singing groups and all that, and then of course with her family. But I hope you'll uh, be sure to welcome her. And uh, they're going to be singing for us Sunday night. I should have asked, how'd the practice go before church? You're singing Sunday night now because I've already said it, right? So ready or not, but uh, they'll be singing. We're so glad that uh, you're here. Hope you welcome uh, her. We see tonight, last week we saw the power, uh, the power that comes from prayer and how we must have prayer in our church. We must have prayer in our homes. We must have prayer in our lives. But tonight I want you to notice the method of the church. You know, methods are important. Now hear me out on this. There are some things that you can change and the outcome is not affected that much. Maybe you have a recipe. Uh, Maybe it was a recipe that was passed down for many generations and you've kind of tweaked it a little bit, added a little bit more of this or taken out a little bit of this and and it's actually maybe even improved the recipe. That's possible. Can I tell you, when God gives the recipe, it doesn't need our improvements, it doesn't need our tweaking, it doesn't need our changing, it just needs to be followed. And God gives us His Word. He gives us the recipe... For the church, it's found in the book of Acts. It's found throughout uh, the epistles. It's found throughout the entire Bible, the recipe for the church. By the way, in the Old Testament, God gave 
specifications for the tabernacle. And you read through some of those specifications in uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers about the, 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 the tabernacle and the, the materials and uh, the, the particular uh, uh, um, uh, metals that are to be used and the, the, the precious uh, uh, metals that were used in preparing that and then the sacrifices and, and all of that. It was exact and it was specific and it wasn't supposed to be messed with. It was supposed to be followed and obeyed. How about this? When... David was preparing to build the temple. God gave specifications. And those specifications were very clear. As a matter of fact, God even told David, he said, David, you're not going to build it because you are a man of war. He said, but you need to prepare it. And he said, I'm going to have your son Solomon build it. Wow, that's pretty specific. Not only how to build it, but who was supposed to build it. And we get to the New Testament and God has a plan for his church. God has methods that we should use as we seek to glorify him and please him. And as we seek to be instruments in his hands that he uses to build his church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is building his church and he gives us some methods. I want you to notice in Acts chapter 1. Notice with me verse number 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Now we looked at this last week about the prayer and supplication. But tonight I want to draw your attention to that phrase with one accord. That word accord it means agreement. It's harmony of minds. It is a consent or a concurrence of opinions or wills. Can I tell you, it's hard to work together in one accord because so many times everybody wants to do their own thing. Now, by the way, I thank the Lord for our church. I thank the Lord for a spirit of unity in our church. I thank the Lord for one accord in our church. But you look at our country today. Uh, you look at your place of business. Uh, you look at what's going on in corporations. And can I tell you, there's a lot of discord. There's a lot of, of the opposite of harmony. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of struggle. Everybody's in a battle for power. Everybody wants their way. But when it comes to the church, we've got to submit to God's way. And we've got to say we're going to work together in one accord because that is God's method. Notice with me Acts chapter 2 verse number 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Notice Acts 2 verse number 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. You see, they had one purpose. They had an agreement. They had a unity. They had an accord. And they said, we are going to do this and we're going to do it together. Notice Acts 4 and verse number 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. And they began to pray and praise God in one accord. Notice with me Acts 5 
Acts 5 and verse number 12, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Notice with me Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 and verse number 6. And the people, the Bible says, with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Notice with me Acts 15, please. Acts 15. Verse number 25. It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. They said, hey, we're going to send some missionaries and we're going to send some missionaries and we are on the same page and we're on in one accord and we are in harmony and we're in agreement and we're in unison and we're going to do this because we are doing it together. As we look at this subject tonight of doing it God's way, I want to tell you there are some methods that God has given us that ought not to be changed. And we're going to have to be in one accord when it comes to these methods. Let me give you a couple thoughts just to get you thinking. Number one, I think this isn't obvious because we're here tonight, but the church is God's method. The local church, the assembly of believers is God's plan for his people. And we've got to be on the same page there. We've got to be on the same schedule there. We've got to say, God wants us to be in church. God uh, uh, built the church. God gave his life for the church. The church is God's plan. And we've got to be in agreement that this is what God wants to do in 2022. We've got to be in agreement on that. It's God's plan. We've got to be in agreement that God's plan is Bible, and, and, and don't miss that first part, Bible preaching. And Bible teaching, that is God's plan. You read the book of Acts, and guess what they were doing? Every time you turn around, they're preaching the Word of God. Every time you turn around, they're teaching the Bible. Guess what Paul was doing? He was teaching Timothy. He was teaching Titus. Guess what he told Timothy? He said, the things that have been committed to you, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. That's the plan. By the way, we're not here to teach our ideas. We're not here to teach our opinions. We're not here to teach our preferences. We're here to teach what the Bible says. And can I tell you, if you teach your young people and if we teach our children what the Bible says, then there's going to come a day when that's going to be what they believe because it's from the Bible. But if it's just because mama said so and it's just because daddy said so and it's not from the Bible, there's going to be a generation we're going to lose. Uh, turn with me. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. First Chronicles in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 13. I want to show you the importance of teaching the Bible to your children. Teaching the Bible to the next generation. Uh, and I know some of you say, oh, my children are grown and gone. You've got grandchildren. You've got a Sunday school class. You've got a, a junior church. You've got a, a bus route. You've got some area, some avenue where you can teach and instruct 1 Chronicles 13, the Bible tells us that the ark of God was being brought back by David. Of course, it had been taken by the Philistines and it uh, had been, been in the house of Abinadab for 20 years. Now, I don't have time tonight to go over all of this, 
But the Ark of the Covenant was significant. The Ark of the Covenant was a picture of the presence and the power and the glory of God. Friend, I want to tell you, it was more than just a piece of furniture. And the church ought to be more to our children than just a building where we get together a couple times a week. And this book has got to be more than just another book that sits on the shelf. And prayer has got to be more than just a ritual that we go through every night before bed and now I lay me down to sleep. It's got to be real. And the Ark of the Covenant was in the house of Abinadab for 20 years. The time came to move the Ark of the Covenant. And you know what we find? We find that Abinadab's sons had no clue what the Ark of the Covenant was all about. I think 20 years is significant because that's about the time we have our children in our homes, roughly. And can you imagine for Abinadab in 20 years? I don't know. I, I, and by the way, before we throw stones at Abinadab, let's look at ourselves in the mirror. But in 20 years, Abinadab did not teach his sons what the ark of God represented and what God had said about the ark. Notice with me 1 Chronicles 13. The Bible says, And they carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. And David and all Israel played before God with all their might and with singing and with harps and with psalteries and with timbrels and with cymbals and with trumpets. And when they came unto the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark and there he died before God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. Wherefore he called that place, the place is called Paris, Uzzah unto this day. And David was afraid of God that day saying, how shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So David brought not the ark home to himself to the city of David, but carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Say, that seems a little, seems a little severe. That seems a little much that... God would kill a man because he reached out to touch the ark when the ark was ready to fall. That sounds like a lot, but can I tell you, God had told his people, first of all, he said, when you transport the ark, you're not supposed to use oxen. The ark was supposed to be transported with staves with rods that were put through the, the rings on the ark and it was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites, more specifically the Kohathites. It was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of men, not supposed to be carried with oxen. Not only that, the ark of God was not supposed to be touched 
And here we see there were three failures. There were three strikes because the ark was being driven by, by, by oxen. It was being uh, 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 transported with animals instead of on the shoulders of men. Uzzah and Ohio, they were not Kohathites, which was the requirement. And then we see that these men made a very serious mistake. Uzzah made a very serious mistake when he touched it. You say, well, how were they supposed to know that? Because God had told them in his word, those three things don't do it. Now, here's what I'm saying. For 20 years, that ark was in the house of Abinadab. And for 20 years, I don't know what happened. I don't know if he told the boys and they forgot. I don't know if he never told them. I don't know if Abinadab himself didn't know. But somehow, there was a generation that had no idea what the ark of God was all about. Now, friend, I want to tell you, I'm afraid in our nation, we're raising up some young people that have no idea what the power of God's all about. I'm afraid we're raising a generation that have no idea about what answered prayer is all about. I'm afraid we're raising a generation that don't even know what Bible preaching or Bible teaching is because they never get to hear it. Because they don't have a, 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 a parent or they don't have a grandparent or they don't have somebody that's taken the time to, to bring them to church or to show them the way or to instruct them in the way of the Lord. And we see God's methods are not to be changed. We see that Abinadab in his own house for 20 years, he never taught his children the way that God had commanded for things to be done. I want to tell you, we better teach our children the way that God has commanded for it to be done. When it comes to the church, when it comes to Bible preaching and Bible teaching, when it comes to prayer and fasting. I'm afraid in most churches today, if you asked a young person what does it mean to fast? And by the way, I'm not saying that our children need to be doing it. But there ought to be some parents that do it. There ought to be some adults that do it. I'll, I'll teach a lesson here soon about what the Bible says about fasting. And how there are some things where Jesus said, This cometh not but by prayer and fasting. It's a Bible truth. It's a Bible principle. It's a, it's a command. What about the methods of soul winning and the methods of witnessing the children and master clubs they quoted for me the first verse they quoted was mark 16 15 where jesus said go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature that's our job that's our responsibility to share the gospel with people that do not know christ but yet if we don't teach the next generation they're not going to get it what about praising god most churches today, people come, they sit on a pew like a bump on a log. And by the way, I'm not saying you have to shout. But I'll say this, if God's doing something in your heart, there ought to be more than a frown. There ought to be more than a scowl. And if you can stay up Saturday night watching UNC and Duke play and you can act like a crazy person, I think you can at least come to church and act like you enjoy it. Amen. And here it is. Are you ready for this? The next generation sees 
what is actually exciting to us and what matters more to us. We get more excited about a fishing trip or we get more excited about a hunting trip or we get more excited about a, a, a new toy or we get more excited about this or that. I'm not against those things, but I'm just saying that's not the most important thing. Most important thing is the things of God. Praising God, worshiping God, glorifying the Lord. I wonder when was the last time in your home that your children heard you or when was the last time your grandchildren heard you praise God for anything? I'm sure our grandchildren have heard about the price of gas. I'm sure our grandchildren have heard about the president. I'm sure, about the, I'm sure the grandchildren heard about this and heard about that. And maybe your children heard about all the bad stuff going on. But when was the last time your children just heard you stop and say, we just need to praise God for what he's done. That's not an option. That's not up for debate. Praising God is a command. That is God's method. That is God's way. What about serving? All of us ought to be serving God. You ought to have right now, you ought to have areas in your life and areas in your schedule that are devoted to serving God. Not just sitting on a pew. And I know I'm talking to the cream of the crop Wednesday night. Faithful people. I understand that. But there ought to be things you're doing to serve God. Don't wait for everybody to serve you. Don't wait. Well, what's the church going to do for me? What's brother so-and-so going to do for me? What's so-and-so going to do for me? Why don't we get busy serving God? The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. What about giving? And by the way, I, I, I understand this. My, my parents didn't talk a lot about, uh, about giving. They didn't make a big deal about it as far as like, oh, look at what we're doing. We're putting the money in the offering. They didn't do that. But I knew that my parents tithed. I knew that my parents gave to missions. I knew that my parents gave above and beyond. I knew that. I, I saw that. I witnessed that. Can I tell you, it ought not be a secret. I, I think sometimes my wife and I have talked about this because our giving now is all online. It just automatically comes out, the tithe and the offering and missions and the, the building and all those things, all those categories. But we need to make sure that we are teaching the next generation that giving is not optional. Giving is a command. The, the, the tithe is the Lord's. And you say, well, pastor, that's Old Testament. You're right. You're absolutely right. The New Testament, they gave all that they had. It's amazing how people want to talk about the Old Testament when they start hearing about that. But, but the tithe belongs to God. And then the method of holiness, and we could talk about a lot. But God's method is not to be like the world. God's method is to be separate from the world, to be different from the world, to be holy, to be godly, to be set apart. These are methods that we can't change. You may change a recipe. We talked about that earlier, and that's okay. But we don't change God's recipe. We don't change God's word. We don't change God's way. Let me give you a few thoughts about our methods. One method, uh, one way that we accomplish these methods is by working together. We saw the verses about being in one accord, being in harmony, being in agreement, uh, 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 working together in the work of God. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And our church must be a church of people who are unified. Somebody said it like this, teamwork makes the dream work. May God help us to be a church that works together as a team. Every ministry has got to work together. The choir's got to work together. The nurseries have got to work together. Uh, the bus ministry's got to work together. The junior church has got to work together. The master club's got to work together. All of the ministries, the school, it's all got to work together. That's the plan. 
an old Peanuts cartoon. Maybe you've uh, seen this before. But in an old Peanuts cartoon, Lucy demanded that her brother Linus change the channel on the television set. And then she threatened her brother with her fist if he did not change the channel. Linus asked the question. He said, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? Lucy said, these five fingers. Individually, they are nothing. But when I curl them together into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Line aside and said, what channel do you want? As Linus walked away, he looked at his own fingers and said, why can't you get organized like that? Well, can I tell you, we need as a church to be unified. We need to work together. We need to be on the same page. By the way, uh, I'll get to this probably next week. But did you know in Proverbs 6, it tells us there's a list of things that God hates. And you know what made the list? He that soweth discord among the brethren. I tell you, God wants a church that is unified. Psalm 133, verse number one, the Bible says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Unity is achieved in what you do, and it's also achieved in what you don't do. May God help us to be unified. Be careful what you say. Be careful how you say it. I understand that sometimes all of us can be too sensitive about things, but may God help us to guard our words. May God help us to guard our conversations. May God help us to guard what we say uh, on a telephone or what we say in person or what we say on a computer. May God help us to be a church that is unified. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 16. The method, God has methods, and those methods are accomplished when God's people work together. Romans 16, Paul gives a list of some helpers. And by the way, I thank the Lord at this church that we have, I use this term a lot, but we have an army of workers. Tonight, I saw it over in action in master clubs. There's an army of workers over there. You don't have a ministry with a hundred some children on a Wednesday night and just have two adults over there to supervise. There's an army of workers over there. Well, can I tell you, I thank the Lord we have a lot of workers whether it comes to our nursery, whether it comes to our, our sound ministry or our radio ministry or our, our bus ministry or children's ministry or choir, or whatever it is, I thank the Lord for a group of workers. Notice Romans 16. We see that Paul gives a list of helpers. He says in verse number uh, three, uh, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks and whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Paul was saying, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for people like Aquila and Priscilla. If it weren't for a husband and wife team that just got in and got involved and sacrificed and gave of themselves. Friend, I want to tell you, I wouldn't be here tonight if it weren't for a whole lot of folks here at Victory Baptist Church that have worked together and sacrificed and showed up and been faithful. And, and God uh, has done an amazing work through God's people who have been faithful. 
But then notice we get down in that list and he goes on in verse number uh, 13, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Uh, he says in verse number uh, 16, salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. He says, hey, uh, uh, let's acknowledge those people. By the way, we don't use the holy kiss, but we use the handshake, uh, pat on the back. Uh, thanks so much. But then notice verse number 17. He gets done with this list of workers. These people who have worked together and labored together. And he says in verse number 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Those are some pretty serious words there. You almost think Paul's going to end Romans 16 with kumbaya. But that's not how he ends it. He says, you better mark those people that all they want to do is stir up trouble. All they want to do is cause discord. And all they want to do is cause offenses. And all they want to do is cause division. He said, you better mark them and avoid them. Say, no, pastor, I got it figured out. I'm going to change them. I'm going to spend a lot of time with them. I'm going to disciple them. And I'm going to make them, I'm going to turn them into positive people. Probably not. They're probably going to turn you into what they are rather than you turn them into what you are. Just do what God says. You mark them and you avoid them. Say, well, does that mean I can't speak to them at church? Absolutely not. That's not what it means. But you better be very careful about spending a lot of time and giving an ear to people that all they ever want to do is talk about so-and-so, or talk about this brother or this sister, or talk about this, or talk about how bad these people are. Better watch out for that. Verse number 17, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them, for they that are such... Ooh. This is pretty serious. They serve not our Lord Jesus Christ. People that cause division, people that are always trying to point out the negative in everybody else, and all they want to do is stir up trouble, and all they want to do is, is cause you to doubt the Word of God, and all they want you to do is, is to get out of serving God and not be, not be so faithful and all that. All those people are doing, they're not serving the Lord. Notice what it says. They serve their own belly. It's all about them. You know, sometimes why people will point out the faults in everybody else is because they're trying to make themselves look good. Yeah, I tell you, Brother George Colum, he's not a bad singer. He's not bad on the guitar, but, you know, I've heard better. You know, what, you know what I'm doing? I'm waiting for you to say, well, yeah, of course, Pastor. You know, you do sound a lot better when you play that guitar. And you do sound a lot better when you... And by the way, it's so subtle. I think sometimes, I think people don't even realize it. I think they, it has become a part of their life is they've got to cut everybody else down to try to make themselves look good. 
Friend, that is not serving God. That is serving yourself. And notice what it says. And by good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. You better watch out. Let's take it a step further. Let's not just watch out. Let's not be like that. Let's work together. Let's have a spirit of unity. Let's have a, a spirit that says, you know, I don't want to tear people down. I want to build somebody up. Somebody's struggling. Let's, let's kick them while they're down. No, actually, let's not. Let's help them up. Let's pray for them. Let's love them. Let's encourage them. Let's be what God wants us to be. And let's dwell together in unity. Psalm 133.1, I quoted a minute ago. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And may God help us as a church with our method that God has given us to use. May God help us to do it with unity. And may God help us to do it in one accord. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. For more information about our ministry, please visit our website at vbcrr.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.